Chapter 4, Part 3 of American Men of Action by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Lincoln and His Successors, Part 3. The Republican Party had been supreme in the national government for a quarter of a century, and there seemed no reason to doubt that Blaine, its candidate in the campaign of 1884, would at last realize his consuming ambition to be elected president. He had an immense personal prestige. He had outlived the taint of corruption attached to him during the administration of Grant, and he had for years been preparing and strengthening himself for this contest. So he entered it confidently. But a new issue had arisen, that of the protective tariff, which, originally a war revenue measure, had been formally adopted as a principle of republicanism, which was hailed by its adherents as a new and brilliant economic device for enriching everybody at nobody's expense, and which had really enriched a few at the expense of the many. The Democrats, with considerable hesitation and ambiguity, pronounced against it, arraigned the Republican Party for corruption, and named as their nominee Grover Cleveland of New York. Cleveland was born in New Jersey in 1837, the son of a clergyman whose early death threw him upon his own resources. He started west in search of employment, stopped at Buffalo, and afterwards made it his home. He studied law while working as a clerk and copyist was admitted to the bar in 1859, and in the late 70s was elected mayor of Buffalo on a reform ticket. Almost at once, the country's eyes were fastened upon him. Elected as a reform mayor, he continued to be one after his induction into office. He actually seemed to think that the promises and pledges made by him during his campaign were still binding upon him, and astounded the politicians by proceeding to carry those promises out. So scathing were the veto messages he sent in, one after another, to a corrupt council that they awakened admiration and respect even among his opponents. The messages, written in the plainest of plain English, aroused the people of the city to the way in which they had been robbed by dishonest officials. They rallied behind him, and his reputation was made. In 1882, his party wanted a reform candidate for governor, and they naturally turned to Cleveland and he was elected by a plurality of two hundred thousand. He found the same condition of things on a larger scale at Albany as at Buffalo, a corrupt machine paying political debts with public money, and here again he showed the same astonishing regard for pre-election pledges, the same belief in his famous declaration that a public office is a public trust, and bill after bill was vetoed while the people applauded and with every veto came a message stating its reasons in language which did not mince words and which all could understand. He showed himself not only to be entirely beyond the control of the political machine of his own party, but also to possess remarkable moral courage, and he became naturally and inevitably the Democratic candidate for president, since the Democratic platform was in the main an arraignment of Republican corruption and moral decay. The campaign which followed was a bitter one, but Blaine had estranged a large portion of his party. He made a number of bad blunders, and Cleveland was elected. The old party founded by Jefferson, which, beginning with Jefferson's administration, had ruled the country uninterruptedly for forty years, was returned to power, and on an issue which would have delighted Jefferson's heart. 
much to the dismay and disappointment of the politicians, the new president made no clean sweep of Republican officeholders. He took the unheard of ground that, in the public service, as in any other, good work merited advancement, no matter what the politics of the individual might be. He made some changes, as a matter of course, but he was from the first sturdily in favor of civil service reform. It is worth remarking that a Democratic president was the first to take a decided stand against the principle of to the victors belong the spoils, first put into practice by another Democratic president, Andrew Jackson, over fifty years before. His stand, too, on the pension question was startling in its audacity. The shadow of the Civil War still hung over the country. The soldiers who had served in that war had formed themselves into a great, semi-political organization known as the Grand Army of the Republic, and worked unceasingly for increased pensions, which Congress had found itself unable to refuse. More than that, the members of Congress were in the habit of passing hundreds of special bills giving pensions to men whose claims had been rejected by the Pension Department as not coming within the law. Cleveland took the stand that, unless the soldier had been disabled by the war, he had no just claim to government support, and he vetoed scores of private pension bills, many of which were shown to be fraudulent. In other ways, his remarkable strength of personality soon became apparent, and his determination to do what he thought his duty, regardless of consequences. His message of December 1887 fairly startled the country. It was devoted entirely to a denunciation of the high tariff laws, a subject on which the Democratic leaders had deemed it prudent to maintain a discreet silence since the preceding election, and which many of them hoped would be forgotten by the public. But Cleveland's message brought the question squarely to the front, and made it the one issue of the campaign which followed. Cleveland would have been elected but for the traitorous conduct of the leaders in New York, who had never forgiven him for the way in which, as governor, he had scourged them. New York State was lost to him, and his opponent, Benjamin Harrison, was elected, although his popular vote fell below that of Cleveland by over a hundred thousand. But Cleveland had his revenge four years later, when, in spite of the protests of the leaders from his own state of New York, he was again nominated on a platform denouncing the tariff and defeated Harrison by an overwhelming majority. And now came one of those strange instances of party perfidy and party suicide of which the country had just witnessed a second example. In accordance with the platform pledges, a bill to lower the tariff was at once framed in the House and adopted but the Senate, although Democratic in complexion, so altered it that it fell far short of carrying out the party pledges. The leader in the Senate was Arthur P. Gorman of Maryland, and to him chiefly was due this act of treachery. The President refused to sign the bill, and it became a law without his signature. There can be little question that it was the failure of the Democratic Party to fulfill its pledges at that critical time which led to its subsequent disruption and defeat. Twice more did Cleveland startle the country with his extraordinary decision of character. In the summer of 1894, a great railroad strike, centering at Chicago, occasioned an outbreak of violence which the governor of Illinois did nothing to quell. The president, therefore, declaring that the rioters had no right to interfere with the United States mails, ordered national troops to the scene to maintain order. 
A year later, when the British government, involved in a boundary dispute with Venezuela, declared that it did not accept the Monroe Doctrine and would not submit the dispute to arbitration, the President sent a message to Congress, declaring that the Monroe Doctrine must be upheld at whatever cost. The country was thrilled from end to end. The President's course approved, and Great Britain at last consented to arbitration. And yet, when Cleveland left the presidential chair for the second time, he had entirely lost control of and sympathy with his own party. He had shown little tact in his dealings with the party leaders. He seemed to forget that, after all, these leaders had certain rights and privileges which should be respected. He sometimes blundered through very anxiety to be right. You have heard some men called so upright that they leaned over backward, well, that, occasionally, was Cleveland's fault. He was subjected to such a storm of abuse as no other ex-president ever had to endure. That he felt it keenly, there can be no question. But in the years which followed, his sturdy and unassailable character came to be recognized and appreciated, and his death, in the summer of 1908, was the occasion of deep and widespread sorrow. We have told how, in 1888, Cleveland was defeated for the presidency by Benjamin Harrison. Harrison was a grandson of the old warrior of Tippecanoe, William Henry Harrison, the successful candidate of the Whig Party, 48 years before. He was an able but not brilliant man, had served through the Civil War, and was afterwards elected senator from Indiana, to which state he had removed from Ohio at an early age. The platform on which he was elected pledged the party to the protective tariff principle, and a high-tariff measure known as the McKinley Bill was passed, raising duties to a point higher than had ever before been known in the history of the United States. The Dependent Pension Bill, which Cleveland had vetoed, and which gave a pension to every Union soldier who was from any cause unable to earn a living, was also passed. But these policies did not appeal to the public. Besides which, Harrison, although a man of integrity and ability, was popular with neither the rank nor file of his party through a total lack of personal magnetism, and though he received the nomination, Cleveland easily defeated him. The remainder of his life was passed quietly at his Indiana home. We have seen how Cleveland's independence and want of tact estranged him from his party, and the party itself was soon to run upon virtual shipwreck under the guidance of strange leaders. A word must be said, in this place, of the extraordinary man who led it three times to defeat. When the Democratic National Convention met in Chicago in 1896, one of the delegates from Nebraska was a brilliant and eloquent lawyer named William Jennings Bryan. He had gained some prominence in his state, and had served in Congress for four years, but he was practically unknown when he arose before the convention and made a free silver speech which fairly carried the delegates off their feet. Good oratory is rare at any time. Its power can hardly be overestimated, especially in swaying a crowd, and Bryan was one of the greatest orators that ever addressed a convention. His nomination for the presidency followed, and the result was the practical dismemberment of the Democratic Party. For Bryan was a populist, as far as possible removed from the fundamental principles of democracy, advocating strange socialistic measures, and the conservative element of the party regarded him and his theories with such distrust that it put another ticket in the field, and he was badly beaten. Twice more he led the party in presidential campaigns, each time being defeated more decisively than the last. 
His engaging personality, his ready oratory, and his supreme gifts as a politician won for him a vast number of devoted friends, who believed, and who still believe, in him absolutely. But the country at large, apparently, will have none of him. The Republican nominee in 1896 was William McKinley of Ohio, best known as the framer of the McKinley Tariff Bill. Born in Ohio in 1843, he had served through the Civil War, had been a member of Congress, and twice Governor of Ohio. He was a thorough party man, and modified his former views on the silver question to conform with the platform on which he was nominated. His campaign manager, Mark Hanna, was one of the most astute politicians the country had ever produced, and raised a campaign fund of unprecedented magnitude, all of which, combined with the disintegration of the Democratic Party, gave McKinley a notable victory. The great event of his first administration was the war with Spain, undertaken to free Cuba, into which McKinley, be it said to his credit, was driven unwillingly by public clamor cunningly fostered by a portion of the press. Its close saw the purchase of the Philippines and the entrance of the United States upon a colonial policy believed by many to be wholly contrary to the spirit of its founders. There was never any question of McKinley's renomination, for his prestige and personal popularity were immense, and his victory was again decisive. He had broadened rapidly, had gained in statesmanship, had acquired a truer insight into the country's needs, and was now freed, to a great extent, from party obligations. Great hopes were built upon his second administration, and they would no doubt have been fulfilled, in part at least. But a few months after his inauguration, he was shot through the body by an irresponsible anarchist while holding a public reception at Buffalo, and died within the week. The years which have elapsed since his death enable us to view him more calmly than was possible while he lived, and the country has come to recognize in him an honest and well-meaning man of more than ordinary ability, who might have risen to true statesmanship and won for himself a high place in the country's history had he been spared. On the ticket with McKinley, a young New Yorker named Theodore Roosevelt had been elected vice president. Roosevelt had long been prominent in his native state as an enthusiastic reformer, had made a sensational record in the war with Spain, and, on his return home, had been elected governor by popular clamor, rather than by the will of the politicians, to whom his rough-and-ready methods were extremely repugnant. So, when the National Convention was about to be held, they conceived the great idea of removing him from state politics and putting him on the shelf, so to speak, by electing him vice-president and the plan was carried out in spite of Roosevelt's protests. Alas for the politicians! It was with a sort of poetic justice that he took the oath as president on the day of McKinley's death, September 14, 1901, while they were still rubbing their eyes and wondering what had happened. His evident honesty of purpose, combined with an impulsive and energetic temperament, which led him into various indiscretions, soon made him a popular hero. He was a sort of Andrew Jackson over again, and in 1904 he was sent back to the presidency by an overwhelming majority. For a time he was, indeed, the central figure of the Republic. His energy was remarkable. He had a hand in everything, but many people, after a time, grew weary of so tumultuous and strenuous a life, and drew away from him, while still more were estranged by the undignified and violent controversies in which he became entangled. It is too soon, however, to attempt to give a true estimate of him. 
Indeed, he is as yet only in mid-career, and what his years to come will accomplish cannot be even guessed. Despite his controversies with the leaders of his party, he retained sufficient power to dictate the nomination of his successor, William Howard Taft, an experienced jurist and administrator who is but just entering upon his work as these lines are written, but to whom the American people are looking hopefully for a wise and moderate administration. So stands the history of the rulers of the nation. As one looks back at them, one perceives a certain rhythmical rise and fall of merit and attainment, which may roughly be presented thus. A graph here shows Washington high, Jackson low, Lincoln high, Cleveland low, question mark high. Washington freed us from the power of England. Lincoln freed us from the power of slavery. The third man in this great trio will be who will solve the vast economic problems which are the overshadowing issues of our day. Will he be a Democrat or Republican, or of some new party yet to be born? In any event, let us hope that fate will not long withhold him. End of chapter 4, part 3 Recording by William Tomko